Well, we are in our last week uh, looking at marriage. All is not fair in love and war. And man, we're really going to miss Tom and Doreen, aren't we? Wasn't, wasn't that funny? Four weeks of that. Unfortunately, they won't be back anytime soon. I don't know if you, um, if you really understood the lyrics to the opening song. It was Toby Keith. Who knew it was Toby Keith? Yeah. That was it? Wow, man. Toby Keith singing, Happiness Can't Buy You Money. He sang about living paycheck to paycheck. And there's one line in there that repeats itself a few times. We would save for a rainy day, but it's always sunny. Until that rainy day comes and there's nothing there to fall back on. And the issues begin. The issues begin in marriage. The conflicts begin. You know, um, one of the things that was right in this, in this marriage counselor video is that money is the number one cause for divorce in this country. More than, than unfaithfulness to the spouse, money issues are the number one cause for divorce. It's the biggest issue causing conflict in most marriages. My marriage, the biggest conflict, of course, is my wife's family. Um, but, then, um, but then, right there, money, money is probably next in our marriage. I don't, know, I don't know about yours. Statistically, it's the most volatile issue in marriage. And we started our series on marriage out three weeks ago, talking about God's design for marriage. And God's design in scripture is clearly for a man and a woman to become one. He calls it to, become, to becoming one flesh. His purpose is, is unity in marriage. And maybe the biggest threat to that unity in marriage are money issues. Because it lures our heart away to other things. It, it seduces our hearts away from our devotion to our spouse. There's lots and lots and lots of passages in the Bible and specifically in the New Testament that have to do with money. It's actually, if you look at the issues Jesus talked about, there's no other issue that he talked as much about as money. And it's not because he asked for it and wanted it and needed it. He talks so much about money because he knows that when he talks about money, he talks about our heart. And that's what he was after. He wasn't after people's money. He was after people's hearts. And that's why he addresses money so often. And so I looked through scripture um, in preparation for this message. Found white for a passage that actually combines marriage and finances. And as far as I could find, there's only one passage that actually talks about both of those together. There's, again, there's lots of passages that talk about principles for finances and how we should handle them. And we'll look at some of those and, and how those can be applied in marriage. But I want to take you to the passage that actually talks about both marriage and finances. And it's in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. But you know what? Let's pray before we go there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you again, Lord, for the privilege of being here this morning. Thanks for the freedom we enjoy to meet together like this on a Sunday morning and to um, have fellowship with each other, get to know each other, to get to know you better, to get to know your word better. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would speak to our hearts on, on such a practical issue as finances and as it applies to our marriages. Lord, we know marriages are precious to you. And we know that finances are a big threat 
to the unity and oneness that you desire for marriage. So I just pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. And uh, I just thank you for your presence here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. It says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. We've dealt with that a few weeks ago. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So in this passage, he talks first about marriage and keeping the marriage bed pure. He talks about sexual purity and faithfulness in marriage. And then in verse 5, he talks about money and faithfulness. So he's saying, I want you to be faithful physically to your spouse. And then in verse 5, he says, I want you to be fiscally, financially faithful in your marriage. He says, keep your marriage bed pure and then keep your wallet pure. He talks about it here as uh, in verse 5, he says, the love of money. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And the word love for money, that's translated love for money. You've got to know that the, what we have in the English Bible is a translation of the Greek or Hebrew uh, origin. And so often, if, if you translate something, it's often really hard to capture the essence of a word. And, and often we interpret a little bit as, as we translate. And so the word translated love for money here in the Greek original is the word covet. To covet something, to want something that is not yours. He says, keep your lives free from coveting. Keep your lives free from, from desiring what isn't yours. It seems that coveting isn't, isn't a big issue in our churches today, isn't it? Have you heard a lot of messages on coveting or not coveting, on not wanting what others have? I think we don't talk about it a whole lot because it's what our whole culture and economy centers around. So we don't call it coveting anymore. We call it advertising. <laughs> uh, or, yeah, I'm not in the coveting business. I'm in PR. You know, when um, you all know about my love for Costco, right? And uh, my love for uh, having lunch there at the sample booths. <laughs> feeding my children good, nutritious lunch meals after church on Sunday. We'll go there today. But see, after preparing this message, I will not call them sample stations anymore. I will call them covered stations. Because you know what they want, want us to do? They want us to try just a little bit of that yummy ravioli stuffed with cheese and spinach. They had those on Friday. <laughs> see, what they, what they want me to walk away with is, I got to have this. I got to have this. And they want me to go walk straight to the cooler and grab a box. They want me to covet what they're offering and feel like I got to have it. I got to have it. And the I got to have it is what breaks down so many of our marriages. In verse 4, he's talking about, I got to have that person. <laughs> I got to have that person. That's not mine. That's the, the physical unfaithfulness. 
But then, more often than I got to have that person, is I got to have this thing. I got to have more of this. And I got to have that. And my spouse doesn't need to know about that. Coveting, keeping our lives free of coveting. And the problem again is that our whole culture and how our whole economy is driven by making you and me covet. That's why what, what Doreen talked about, we get these visa applications, we get this and then this last week I must have gotten five at least credit card offers with, with large spending margins. So what are we going to do about this? I think the, the question that, that the author is asking here in Hebrews, I think he's asking the Hebrews and us a question, especially with this verse 5. I think he's asking us, are you coveting or are you content? Are you coveting or are you content? And it seems very clear here in verse 5 that the, the antidote, the cure to coveting is being content. But why should we and could we be content if everyone around us has more or has better, has things we don't have but would like? And the answer is in the end of verse 5. Let me read verse 5 again. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It says, be free from coveting and be content. And then he says, why? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What God is, is saying here is, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? What he's asking is, do you trust me? Do you really trust me to be true to my promises? Do you really love me and trust my love for you? And he's saying you can either love money, covet more of it, lust after it. This is all the same, the same vocabulary. Or you can love and trust me. Colossians 3, 5 puts it this way. Paul writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It's so interesting, again, that he, he puts this, this, uh, this idea of greed for more stuff, again, in the same context as, as greed and lust for, sexual, for being sexually immoral. There, there is a connection here. This, this coveting and wanting more than we have. Wanting what is not ours. And he calls greed idolatry here. Idolatry is worshipping anything other than God. Idolatry means prioritizing anything as more important than God in our lives. And coveting the love of money is idolatry. See, coveting is worshiping anything other than God. Contentment grows out of worshiping the one true God who is our provider. We say that again. Coveting really is worshiping anything other than God. Anything that's becoming more important than God in your life. Contentment grows out of true worship of that God. Here's how it affects our marriages. 
if, if one or both partners love money, covered money, covered stuff, it's always going to lead to what? It's always going to lead to selfish choices. Always. Selfish choices always have to be kept hidden. It will lead to secrecy and to guilt more and more. I love what, what Dave said two weeks ago in the marriage, that lust, and lust is really nothing else than coveting something you don't have. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can be anything we, we desire more than God. And he said, lust can't wait to take. It's always me-centered. Love and our love for God specifically can't wait to give. See, our, our coveting other things, things that God hasn't provided you with, will always lead to more selfishness, to a me-centered lifestyle. Worshiping him and loving him and trusting him will lead to an attitude of, of giving and selflessness. I found a really interesting article in USA Today. It was towards the end of last year, right when we started planning this, this series and, this, um, and planning to do this message on, on finances in marriage. And I found an, an article in USA Today that was titled Fiscal Infidelity. Have you ever heard that term? Fiscal or financial infidelity. And I just want to read you a short paragraph out of that. It said, many couples commit monetary deceit in their marriages. Someone lies about finances or doesn't share the details. Does that sound familiar at all? Any of you? It can be innocuous, such as fudging on the costs of purchases or hiding a spending spree. Or it could be more significant, such as having a secret credit card or bank account. Serious enough to be considered what some relationship experts call financial or fiscal infidelity. And then it goes on to say that 68% of couples say that this has been a major issue in their marriage. Fiscal infidelity, financial unfaithfulness, a bigger issue than physical unfaithfulness in marriage. And then in that article, it went on to say that it, most of these, these issues or, or incidents of financial infidelity don't have to do with large amounts. It's little amounts, spending $10 or $15 here that the spouse doesn't know about, uh, uh, maybe lying about the true amount of a purchase and hiding things. And then what happens is what, what Tom and Doreen talked about this, this going to the mailbox and, and, and intercepting that letter from a creditor and, and this bank statement, and it just leads to a series of of secrecy and hiding and when that is found out even if the amount isn't very large and and i'm assuming if if this is true for almost 70 percent of of marriages out there it's probably true for 70 percent of our marriages here and i know this has been true in my marriage when that is found out no matter what the amount is it leads to a loss of trust in each other and a loss of trust will always lead to a loss of unity and oneness. And that is what God intends for your marriage and for my marriage. So I think at this point, it's just good for, for you and for me, for our marriages, to just take an inventory and think about this. Do you covet or are you content individually and as a couple? And I, I know that it's not always one or the other. There's usually both going on. But what is your life characterized by? What is your financial attitude characterized by? Is it lusting, coveting for more, having the need for more? 
Or is it being content with where you're at and, and what God has provided you with and being faithful with that? I think this next passage will, will help us explore that a little bit more and how we can actually live content. And that passage is Matthew 6. This is Jesus himself speaking. It's Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now these next verses are really interesting. Verse 22 says, The eye of the lamp, it, no, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. We're going to try and dissect this a little bit. But I, I want to try and simplify this a little bit. I think the main question that, that Jesus is asking the listeners here and us today by default is where is your heart? Or maybe let's take that step further. Where, what is your treasure? What is truly important to you? What is truly valuable to you? Because that's where you'll find your heart. And that's what you will find make be the determining factor in the decisions that you make. The decisions that you make financially. You cannot serve both God and money. And in the context of the message that we're, uh, that we're talking about this morning in terms of marriage, I would say that we can also take out of this is you cannot serve both your spouse and money. Because out of our love for God and serving him flows our loving and serving our spouse. It's a top priority that God has for you and for me if we're in a marriage. That our love for him is primarily expressed in our love and service to our spouse. You cannot serve both God and money. And you cannot serve both your wife and money. Or your husband and money. Serving God implies loving God, and loving God implies loving your spouse. And the things that are most valuable to you will always be your priority. The things that are most important to you will always determine your priorities. So what is it? Is it career? Is it money? Is it your children? Is it your friends? Is it hobbies? What is it? What is your priority? Your spouse needs to know that he or she is your top priority flowing out of your priority of God in your life. And I want to try and, and make that a little practical. I think what God is saying here in this passage, and I think this is central, God is calling you and me to choose the love of your life. You need to choose the love of your life. 
You need to choose where you invest all of your heart. And you know, I know that, that we have to make decisions, financial decisions that affect our family all the time. It just seems that we always default on letting money be the primary decision maker. I know some of you have to make decisions about promotions. Promotions usually, if they're real promotions, come with an increase in pay. Unfortunately, often promotions come with a decrease of time with your spouse and, and time with your family. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you at all. I, I would never venture to, to tell you don't take promotions. But don't just make decisions based on the increased financial capacity that you might have. You better not make a, prom a decision about a promotion without your spouse and discussing how that will affect your spouse and your life together as a couple and your children. Where are your priorities in that? And this goes both ways. A lot of families have dual income today. So this is not just the husband's issue. This is both of your issues. I've seen families where, where the stay-at-home mom was the driving force between driving her husband to work because she so enjoyed the lifestyle that he provided. That is equally wrong priorities. Where is your heart? Who or what is the love of your life? Because that's what this passage that's what jesus is really asking in this passage in matthew he's saying choose the love of your life because the love of your life will determine the, the decisions that you make the bible tells us that if you are married if you are married then your priority is your spouse not your career not the income that you provide And if your spouse doesn't know that they are, that he or she is the top priority, then there will be a lack of trust. There will be a lack of intimacy and a lack of oneness. See, what we communicate to our spouse, if career, if income, if lifestyle is more important, what we really communicate is there's something more important than you. There's something more important to you. Now, to God, we communicate for sure, and there's something more important to you. But we also communicate to our spouse, there's something more important than you. And you know what that more important is? It's not really money. It's another person. And that person is me. But we're communicating if career and money and lifestyle is priority over our spouse. What we're really saying is, I love me more than you. And that's unfaithfulness. Choose the love of your life. And here's where it gets really tricky, is if you have two spouses who choose different loves of their life. That's where it gets really, really difficult. If one spouse chooses to make God the love of their life, And another one chooses to make something else, whether that's lifestyle or income or, or stuff. See, that's why God says it's so important that in marriage together, that the, the source of unity is him and a common commitment to pursuing him.
I want to go back here in this Matthew 6 passage to verses 22 and 23 because they can be a little confusing, and I want to dig into that a little bit. This is the, the passage about the eye being the lamp of the body. Verse 22 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think what this is talking about is that he's asking, what are you keeping your eyes on? What are you keeping your eyes on? Because what you keep your eyes on is going to determine what what is in your heart. Because what you keep your eyes on is what's really important to you. When I was five years old, I, uh, I had an accident as we were moving from one house to another. I was playing in the back of the moving truck and, and I fell into a really sharp piece of metal on the corner. It was a, and it cut my right eye. And my parents then rushed me to the hospital and it was almost miraculous that they could save my eye. To this day when I go to a, an eye doctor, what are they called? Optometrist or something like that. Anyway, they always call in their whole staff to have a look at my eye because it's, they've never seen an eye with so much damage being saved. But here's it. So five, five years old, multiple surgeries. At the end of that, I came out cross-eyed. And I went from seeing great to hardly seeing at all because I couldn't keep my eyes straight. And what happened is I, I couldn't see where I was going. I would bump into things. It was unbelievably frustrating. I went through months and months of, of focused therapy, eye therapy. They actually called it seeing school in German, Seeschule, seeing school, where I had to learn again to focus both of my eyes in the same direction so that I wouldn't just wander off to the left and right and, and bump into things. It was Visual focus. And I think a lot of us are spiritually cross-eyed. We're spiritually cross-eyed because all these things other than God catch our attention. One eye looks in that direction. The other one sees that and wants that. And, and we get off track. We're spiritually cross-eyed. And what he's saying here is if your eyes are bad, you will be distracted in all different... Your eyes will not be focused on one thing. You will see this and want to go after this, and then you will see that and, and be distracted by that. And your life will be, will be identified in duplicity and multiple places of commitment and multiple places your heart is being pulled in. How good can a marriage be? If your heart is being pulled in all different directions. How good can a marriage be? Where there isn't singleness of focus and commitment. And then opposed to the bad eye in this passage. The good eye is talking about single devotion. Good eyes can focus in one place. And that's where you're going. A good eye has single devotion. Proverbs 11.3 says this. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. See, integrity is focus, and it will guide you in a, in a very focused direction. Unfaithfulness destroys and bring, brings duplicity. See, faithful, being faithful is defined as being loyal, constant, steadfast, and reliable. 
That's what being faithful means. And that's what being faithful in marriage means. It means being loyal, constant, steadfast, reliable, even in the area of finances. But how reliable can something be that's being pulled in all different directions? It can't be. Anybody here, a couple of you have had the pleasure of playing golf with me, right? <laughs> pleasure because you won. <laughs> and that is because my golf swing is anything but faithful, true, reliable. All right? Anything but. Once in a while, it'll go straight, but that's because I expected it to go crooked. So, again, even it, it never goes where I want it to go. It never goes where I think it's going to go. When I think it's going to go right, it's going to go straight. When I think it's going to go left, it's going to... Not, not faithful. I can't rely on my golf swing. Can your spouse rely on you? Does your spouse know when you're saying I'm going there, you're going there? When you say this money is being spent here, it's being spent there? Is there faithfulness and reliability? Is there singleness of devotion and focus? Because if there isn't, if you're unreliable and unfaithful in the area of finances, the obvious question will be, well, where else are you not being true? Where else are you not being true? And then in this passage, it says that if, if your eye is bad, your whole body is bad. How great is the darkness, it says. And I think this applies to the area of money in our marriages. If our money thing is off in our marriage, it will affect almost every area of your marriage. Because everything involves money today, doesn't it? Everything is, involved, is, is affected by money. If you're off in your dealings with money, it will affect possibly the home you live in. It affects the food you buy. It affects the education you can afford. It affects the health care you can provide. It affects everything. That's why integrity and faithfulness and singleness of devotion is so important in marriage, especially when it comes to your finances. That's why Hebrews 12 calls us to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It doesn't say fix your eyes on your spouse. That would, that would sound like the right thing to do in marriage. Right? Fix your eyes on your spouse. No, you fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he's going to lead you in, in serving your, your spouse and in having financial integrity and faithfulness. That's where the singleness of focus needs to be. The good eye, a good eye in marriage in this passage fixes itself on Jesus and it follows him. Because where you're looking is always going to be where you're going. Where your eyes are fixed is always where you are going to go. And you know as well as me that you cannot go in two different directions at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. That's what he's saying. You cannot serve God and money. Choose the love of your life.
So how do we make sure that we don't fall into that love of money, but that we do love God and out of that flow flows the love for our spouse? How do we make sure that, that our heart is singly devoted to God and, and trustworthy for our spouse? How do we make sure that our heart is, is one with our spouse, especially also in regards to money? How do we bring that unity I want to invite you to watch a video quickly. We've um, asked three couples here at K2 who, who are in this process uh, financially, who have had some struggles, some of what we've talked about they've experienced. And, uh, and I w want you to watch this with me, if you would. We are Mary and Steve Goldring, and we've been married 23 and a half years, and we have one son who is 18 years old. We're Nina and Andrew, and we've been married for two years, mm -hmm. a little bit more than two years, yep. and I can't believe I had to look at you to find out if we've been married for two years. Validation. I'm Valida Stiggers. This is my husband, Chris. We've been married almost 17 years, um, and we have two girls that are 13 and 6. Andrew and I have really different ways of relating with money. I tend to give it away a lot more, and Andrew tends to save it a whole lot more. I came from a background where uh, money was not handled well. He came from a background where money was handled very well, and then we got married and didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> uh, I would do the money, and I would be on the computer late at night trying to figure it all out, and I'd be really stressed out all the time. And Mary would be like, how's it going? How's it going? How come we went over by $100 this week? And I was like, oh, we're fine. We're fine. You know, scraping the barrel, and it's like, you're making money. Where's the money going? And it was just kind of a str It really was a very strained feeling. I, um, there was a real feeling of uh, disconnectedness, and, at least on my part, and like, what are you doing with this money? I, th I think in a way that I, it was beginning to be a trust issue for me um, with Steve, and it made me a little nervous. It was stressful for me to always feel like I had to hide things from her. I had to hide the fact that we were going under in our checking account, and I didn't want her to know about that stuff. And once, I, once we came clean and we decided to be open with our finances with each other, I felt so much more free. There were probably times when it was like, why did you get cash out of the ATM? You know, <laughs> that put us below, or, or put us too low, and this couldn't clear. Or why didn't you give me a receipt to put in and yeah, no, and then I went and spent this? Yeah. I think our debt wasn't looking too good because while we were saving a lot of money, our debt was kind of pulling one of these and, and just kind of. Well, and we were paying, what, like oh, $10 extra on it, so it counts, right? You, you know, we were doing that kind of thing. I think we were kind of patting ourselves on the back well, a little bit. And, and just count. Like, it does count, and it's good, and it's better than nothing. Again, we didn't communicate too well, and I think that led to uh, some of the problems we had early on where um, we used credit cards too much, and um, it ended up us being too much in debt and unable to repay anybody. We just kind of hobbled along actually for several years and at one point we claimed bankruptcy. 
No. Once we started um, really honoring each other, I think by agreeing to be really open about the budget and our finances and how we were spending and, and what our goals were, and we were in agreement with that. I think one of the, the coolest things that happened for us that we saw God do was we suddenly, it felt like we had more money. And then sure enough, there'll be a need that for somebody in the church or a friend or whatever, and we'll be able to just give that money away. I think that's, for me, that's one of the coolest things. We've conquered a lot just by understanding money. I mean, we don't sit down and talk about a budget. Budget to me says, straight jacket, can't do anything. Makes a lot more sense to me to say, let's discuss the cash flow, how the money's flowing. You know, we want to be good stewards of our resources. I'm, God has blessed us very, very richly. And uh, um, even when it doesn't feel like it. And uh, we just want to be really good with what we have. Our older girl that's 13, um, we are, we've been talking about starting to work with her on maybe actually setting up kind of a budget. I'm just very proud of how she's taken what she's seen us do and uh, applying it quietly in her own life. I mean, if I had if I had a thousand dollars a month to give away, I would just be having a heyday with that. I mean, I I mean, imagine the good we could help happen, you know. And um, yeah, no, that's that's really exciting. To me, that's just a huge blessing to have that kind of that gift of generosity that God's starting to give us. We've always wanted to be generous people, and it's like that's what He's starting to give us as a gift of generosity through this. And I think it's because we've honored Him, but also because we've really tried to honor each other. Awesome. Thank you guys for being uh, so open with, uh, with how this has affected your marriages. And I wanted you to see that, for you to know... If, if you're struggling in this area, you're not on your own. You're not alone. This affects all of us, and, and there is hope. It doesn't matter where you are in your finances. There's hope. And I know there's probably a good number here today of you who, who feel like you're just buried under this mountain. And I just want you to know that when God says he wants to set you free, he wasn't joking. He wasn't saying everywhere else but your finances. No, I mean, that's why he talks about it so much, because he doesn't want you or me to live in the prison of financial responsibilities. Now, there will always be responsibilities. Like we said earlier, everything in life involves money. But God doesn't want you to be ruled by what he's given you. He wants you to be a good steward of what he has provided you with. And so... To close here, I want to give you four, what I think, really practical steps, in, in first steps for you to take. Okay? The first one is integrity. It comes out of the whole issue of fiscal infidelity. The first step to, to freedom in your finances and spiritual freedom with your finances is honesty and integrity and transparency with your spouse absolute importance as long as there is hiding going on protecting that there can't be the truth of god's light shining into that god can't redeem what you keep hidden from him 
and from your spouse. So there has got to be absolute integrity, transparency, and honesty, and unity. And you know what will come out of it? I loved when Steve said, Steve and Mary, when he talked about just how freeing it was to finally, to finally let, let Mary into that. Just the freedom that comes from bringing things into the light is the first step. So there's got to be integrity And obviously scripture is full of (laughs) calling us to integrity and honesty. The second step, and it flows out of that integrity, is faithfulness to your obligations. It's faithfulness to your obligations. Romans 13.8 says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. (laughs) I love that. Don't owe anything to anybody besides loving them. (laughs) You owe that to anybody. But other than owing people love, don't owe anything. Don't owe anything. So we have got to be faithful. God is calling us to be faithful and true to our obligations. And as an encouragement to you, this was something that was really, that God really laid, laid on my heart and my wife's heart recently. We're going through this process. We're just working through uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. He must be the most hated man in America um, during that process. Later on, you just want to kiss him. But um, just, we just got our tax refund this year. And yay, praise God for the IRS giving tax refunds. And, and it allowed us to be faithful and finally pay off something that, that's been just weighing me down. I could sort of, with what Steve said in that video, just the weight of, of trying and wanting to manage it. And just two days ago, we took almost all that refund, and I deposited it with American Express and cut up that card. That was awesome. We took mine and my wife, and we just cut it up. And just, again, the freedom that came out of putting God's word into action. And it's not to praise myself. It took longer than it should have, trust me. But... We, we are called, God expects you and me to be faithful to our obligations, and he will honor that. The third flows out of that one. So be, have integrity, be faithful to your obligations, and then the third one is plan. Now, I understand, it was interesting how, how Valida in the, in the video said, you know, budget doesn't work for her. The T works a lot better, you know, without the budget. But, you know, all of us are different. Some of us need a budget and the, and the lack of grace that that maybe brings, but the, the security that that brings. And every couple works a little different. Just find what works for you, but plan. Do you know that God calls us? He tells us in his work to plan financially. 1 Corinthians 16.2, we won't have it on the screen, but it says this, look it up, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Paul says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. This is in the context of of giving and, and helping the needy and giving to the church. But the principle is, plan for it they were paid back then at the beginning of each week and so what he's saying is don't wait till the end of the week and see what's left over plan for it commit to it set it aside it's a priority and then go about the rest of your spending he says plan so whatever that means for you plan be a wise and good steward of what god has entrusted to you and then lastly fourthly And it came through in several of of the interviews is God's desire for you and me to be generous. And that's generosity. That's the fourth practical step. Be generous. First Timothy 6.17 says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
See, that's what God wants. The Old Testament says, give 10%, give 10%. It's the law. In the New Testament, Jesus says, forget about that. Be generous. <laughs> Be generous with what I've given you. Give your life away. That includes your, your money, your resources, your material belongings. I want the band uh, to come up. So those, those four are practical steps. And I want to encourage you, just take one. Look at your situation and where you're at financially. Maybe you're at the, at the place where you just need to sit down with your spouse and say, there's some stuff I got to tell you. I, I got I to gotta be transparent. I, I, I need to take a step of integrity. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're already there and you just need to start really being faithful to your obligations. Maybe it's time to, to make a budget or plan or whatever that means. And maybe you're already there and maybe that has already set you free to now take the step to be generous with people, with the needs around you. Take one step. Take one step. Identify what that step is for you. And take it. But remember, and I want to leave you with this. Remember <laughs> that in all of that, money or not money, God's plan for your marriage is not primarily that you have everything you need financially. His goal primarily is that you are one in marriage, that you are united, that you are one flesh representing him to the world. And I want you to leave here knowing today that there is hope. There is hope for your marriage. There is hope for your finances. Not just because you're going to take good steps, but because God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his promises to you as a, as a husband and to you as a wife. Choose him as the love of your life. Fix your eyes on him. And he will guide you in your money dealings and he will guide you in your marriage. He's the great healer for your marriage. He's the great financial advisor. And more than anything, he is your provider. He is your provider. And I want to close it in just taking you back to the very beginning of the message. Hebrews 13.5. He says, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Let's worship that faithful God.